Hello and welcome to Top Ten, brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. Tops 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics and government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities, and asks them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple. We ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them and tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer-engineer, and I'm David Perlmutter, a professor at and dean of the college and the host of Tops 10. Today I have with me Mr. Stephen Balk. Balch. Balch. You know, I've been mispronouncing that the whole time. You've never corrected me. Oh, a man of infinite patience. <laughs> Dr. Balch has been director of the Texas Tech Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. He holds a Ph.D. in political science from the University of California at Berkeley, which is a very interesting discussion to have. <laughs> you, Berkeley, uh, taught for 13 years at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City and was the founding president of the National Association of Scholars and, in 2007, received the National Humanities Medal from President George W. Bush. Steve, I, I want to ask my first question. Western civilization, 10 words or less, what is it? It's the legacy of the Greeks and Romans as mediated by the early moderns, people like uh, the Enlightenment, Newton, Darwin. It's European civilization writ large, a kind of global uh, sense of uh, the heritage of a, a kind of reasoned view of the world now expanded globally. So it's a particular historical legacy, but you'd also argue that there's a particular viewpoint or sensibility? Oh, no. Well, um, I think the, the legacy of reason that we get from the ancient Greeks, and I would say also the, you know, the notion of uh, a God-given, rationally created world that we get from the ancient Hebrews. However, that's been run with in all manner of directions by those who have inherited it. Uh, so Western civilization doesn't have a party line. Uh, Western civilization has a lot of contending factions. I think the thing you can say about virtually all of it, however, is it's Promethean. It's an effort to uh, fully understand, in some sense, master the world. It's immensely dynamic, for better or for worse. Um, you know, we've created these, I think, wonderful societies in which people can live freely, in which problems can be discussed rather than fought over, uh, in which material standards of life have kind of escalated to a point unimaginable by uh, even our relatively recent forebears. On the other hand, you know, we've produced uh, all kinds of militant creeds that have ravaged the world, Nazism, communism. Western civilization is responsible for almost every ism that we refer to, even when critiquing Western civilization. Is that uh, the, except, for, except for some kind of religious movements, for example, in the Islamic world today. I don't think that Western civilization is particularly, except by virtue of perhaps there being a reaction to it, responsible for those. But yeah, Western civilization nowadays is really global civilization. Western civilization is really global civilization to the extent we have a global community, to the extent that countries now interact commercially and scientifically. People travel over the world. We think of ourselves as a kind of single global village, at least some of the time. Uh, all those things are outgrowths of what the West has done uh, and, and continues 
continues continues to do. I'm not, of course, arguing that other civilizations aren't now making contributions to that too, but I think if you want to start at some place in your effort to analyze the world and understand what makes it run, the best place to start is that great narrative of the West, which is now again expanded throughout the world. I, I recently am listening to a, a book about the rise of Rome, and there was a particular moment as the Roman city-state was expanding across the Italian peninsula that very quickly they came into contact with Greek colonies and Greek cities or Greek-influenced cities. And for the first several centuries of Rome's rise until their, their eventual conquest of all the successor kingdoms of, of, of Alexander the Great, there was an internal struggle in Rome that was between the people who said, no, we got to adhere to old-fashioned Roman values and not this mysticism and philosophy and, and pansy art <laughs> of the Greeks. Uh, and that actually, that tension was there for quite some time within Rome of, of, of Greek traits having positives and negatives uh, attached to them. Would you be able to identify a particular time when Greek versus Roman Hebrew came a sense of there being an actual Western civilization as opposed to a Roman civilization, an Etruscan civilization, a Phoenician civilization, and so on? Well, the Romans do eventually Hellenize, which means they take over much of Greek civilization, certainly at its intellectual and artistic levels. The term Western civilization wasn't widely used until the 20th century. And uh, it's really the successor term uh, in, a, in a secularized West to Christendom. Christendom certainly thought of itself as Christendom for well over uh, a 1,500 years before, before our time. It saw itself uh, as, of course, partly the scriptural, the, the continuation uh, of, of God's um, communion with the Hebrew people. But it also thought of itself, certainly after you know, the, with the high Middle Ages, with people like Thomas Aquinas, as a synthesis between that and the Greco-Roman, the Aristotelian uh, heritage of reason. So I would think that's probably the crystallizing point. They don't call themselves the West in the 12th century, but they're now beginning to synthesize the two great streams uh, that really make the West what it is today. But again, the term Western civilization uh, is really a large, largely an invention of our universities uh, after the First World War, particularly when Western civilization courses started multiplying in the academy, uh, an effort to um, update this older notion of, on the one hand, Christendom, on the other hand, the study of the, of the ancients and the classics, as sort of putting those two things together, thinking of the contemporary world circa, say, 1920, as an embodiment of that evolution and calling it the Western world. So it's not a new thought, it's not a new concept, but the term itself, Western, to describe uh, our civilization uh, and our inheritance is relatively new. This is a show that combines music as well as philosophy and biography, and mu music is certainly a realm where you can almost quickly identify within a, f a, a few notes whether a song is out of a Western tradition or, say, a Chinese tradition or, say, an Arabic tr tradition. I mean, really, somebody who has no experience with music can identify an Arabic song versus a, uh, a German song. Uh, the songs that you've picked, I, I would say, are definitely within the Western uh, tradition, and, and the first one is 
probably one of the most famous songs in the West uh, at the high day of a, of a particular Western civilization that is uh, in, lo- in lower times now, Rule Britannia. Now, Rule Britannia started as a show song. Is that correct? It was, it was a part of a musical. That's Harmus Arn. Yeah. Um, and it's, yes, it was part of a musical. The reason I've included it is that my father was... British, British born. Now, did he identify himself as, as British, or did he identify himself as as English? His his parents had uh, they were they were Eastern European Jews who had settled in London uh, around the turn of the last century. So English is an ethnic, as Scottish and Irish are, is an ethnic designation. British is more a kind of civic political designation. It means you're a citizen of the United Kingdom. And he thought himself probably uh, first and foremost as British, especially after he came to the United States as a young man. He had been in the Merchant Marine and he came and settled in the United States. And I think um, in contrasting himself to the Yanks, his Britishness meant more and more to him. And he certainly conveyed that to me. So, Did he uh, sing Rule Britannia in the morning to wake <laughs> you up? Or? I certainly knew it from a very young age. I had to pick something that was associated with Britain. That seems to me to be the the uh, the, the, the chief musical symbol of the, of the of the British Empire. I was an Anglophile. I remain an Anglophile. Obviously, I'm American, but I've always had a very special sense of connection to Britain. And I think that shaped me in a variety of ways. What the English-speaking people within the Western world have given to the West and hence the world are a whole variety of important things, but probably the most important thing is the sense of constitutionalism, individual liberty, and a decent, gentlemanly notion of public order, a fair play being unwilling to say be tribal. So within the European sphere, there are, there are a number of countries in which essentially national identity is tribal. Germany might be an example. Um, Eastern European countries would be another set of examples like that. People think of the na- nation as being something having to do with bloodlines. The Brits have some of that, but not nearly as much as the rest of Europe. Uh, there's a sense that each person kind of, it's sort of a, a kind of predecessor of the American notion of, of a country being a country of individuals, of each person sort of succeeding on their own. That kind of liberal tradition that is Anglo-American came to me very forcefully as a result of reading about and, and, and to some extent having a, an emotional connection with Britain. So it, uh, it did form uh, my political and cultural views as much as anything else did. And it did it largely again because I had a father who was British by birth and proud to be so. And uh, to this day, if I uh, hear Rule Britannia or God Save the Queen, just like when I hear uh, the national anthem, I, I get a little teary eyed.
next song is quintessentially American. Take me out to the ball game. So that, that's a, it's a veer. I don't think it's a veer right or left. It's just a veer in culture. I was reading um, a few years ago a biography of uh, a British statesman who had ended up becoming ambassador to the United States during much of World War II. At the time he became ambassador, this was a time where America was fiercely neutral, or, mm-hmm. or many Americans were fiercely neutral. The Japanese not bombed Pearl Harbor. And he wanted to sort of reach out to the American people, win, win them over. That was his assignment from Churchill. You know, Britain was standing alone against Germany. Germany had not invaded uh, um, Russia yet. So he went to a ball game in Chicago, Wrigley Field, as I recall, and he made a terrible mistake of being given a hot dog and not eating it 
and the Chicago Tribune, which, which was a truly fiercely uh, you know, isolationist paper, had blew up a big picture of this British ambassador's hot, uneaten hot dog saying, you know, they're, they're too good for us. They won't eat our hot dogs at our, our games. The ball game in the United States has a cultural and political meaning that, that often uh, eludes <laughs> foreigners, although there's analogs in soccer and everything like that. Did you go out to the ball game with your father? Yes, he took me to the ball game. He loved baseball. Of course, he had been a cricketer, uh, and there is a, a, a certain connection uh, between the rules of cricket, the rules of baseball, the history of baseball, and you know, origin in, in cricket-like play. I have a my father. Cricket, cr- cricket games take nine to twelve days. They, to they finish, take a though. long time to play, but they're That's bat right. and ball games. They're base running games, and and baseball, you know, by comparison to other sports, is also pretty leisurely. There's an opportunity for contemplation, for uh, thinking about strategy. It's it's not all a matter of of, of collision and constant motion. There's a kind of intellectual chess like aspect to baseball. Um, and I suppose, uh, though I don't know cricket as well, that there may be an analogy there. I have a, an uncle, surviving uncle, my father's younger brother, uh, who comes to the United States every year or two and always uh, makes it the prime object of his visit to see the New York Yankees play. So there is a kind of following that baseball has in, in Britain. My father took me to the ball game. It was the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn in the 1950s, and I was a passionate Dodger fan. And it's really one of the tragedies of of my life, I think. Uh, I guess my life hasn't had all that many big tragedies, if I'm citing this as one, but it it was one of the tragedies of my life when the Dodgers left Brooklyn. It broke my heart. I I recently had an opportunity to see the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson, wonderful, inspiring story. But one aspect of it that really grabbed me was this um, computerized digital recreation in the background of of Ebbets Field. Uh, I remember so many days out there. Uh, I loved baseball, and when the Dodgers left, uh, I lost my contact with it. And I think in doing that, they broke your heart. They really did. Um, I, I, you know, now and you never fell in love with it again. That's right. That was uh, I, I. I decided for the, I, I was going to be a sports bachelor. I was. <laughs> That's a great time. <laughs> right. It's it's robbed me of so many opportunities to kind of have conversations with uh, with my fellow Americans uh, about baseball or, or, or other sports for that matter. You can't matter. talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers? It, I can talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers, but there's a rather limited audience for the Dodgers of the 1950s. So it it, it perhaps made my life more preoccupied with, with other things, that were things, things more purely intellectual. Uh, whether that's done me or the world any good, I'm not sure, but it's certainly been a loss. I still finally remember those days at Edwards Field, and, and with great regret, the um, heart-rendering circumstances of, uh, of being jilted by uh, a team I loved. All right! Let me hear you! Good and loud! A one! A two!
Now we're skittering course again. Edward's Taos. Yes. Uh, going the back to, We're going back to uh, deep civilization here. One of the very first major research studies that sort of gave birth to the field of mass communication was a professor who lived at the University of Chicago who studied immigrant press, the Polish press, the mm-hmm. Lithuanian press. These were newspapers printed in the United States, but in Polish and Lithuanian. And he found one of their main functions was to inculcate and to acculturate immigrants. So there was a sort of consensus that immigrants needed to find their identity within the greater panoply of, of Western civilization. Did you see that Well, yourself? it was an emphasis on assimilation. We yeah. were, I mean, I was born in the United States. I grew up speaking English. Uh, I didn't, there wasn't another language spoken in, in my home. Um, so it, it, it wasn't, uh, in my case at least, a need for some crash course in acculturation. But certainly the schools of that time thought of themselves as preparing uh, new generations of Americans, whether these were immigrants, or whether these were just children born, you know, uh, uh, there were always, someone said, barbarians entering the country. Uh, those are the people who get born in hospitals. They're barbarians. They have no culture. Something has to be done to give them culture. And I think uh, that was considered self-consciously a primary mission of the schools. It wasn't so something Edward was, Strauss, did you, when, did, when did you hear oh, well, things like Oh, well, the reason I've thrown Bonfire Proca in there... I Which guess is the, it, the, I guess the, it means the free, free road or something the like happy that. happy road or right. the free, free, free freedom, road, freedom road? Sort of out on the countryside, yeah. roaming freely. It was okay. the theme song of a program that I used to religiously listen to in the 1950s. Uh, I don't know if you uh, have heard of the raconteur Gene Shepard. Uh, Gene Shepard had a radio show uh, in New York primarily. And it was, a, it was a nighttime radio show, at least from the perspective of a 12-year-old. It started at 9 on Sunday evenings and went to 1 in the morning. It was a nighttime show. And he would talk about his childhood in the Midwest. And he would read uh, Sachs Romer's sec- segments of Dr. Fu Manchu. And he would make all sorts of kind of ironic comments about the nature of life. So he's sort of the Garrison Keillor of the he time? Yes, he was yeah. a little bit of a... I think yeah. Garrison Keillor probably would acknowledge yeah. a debt yeah. uh, to Gene Shepard. He had a big following. And and uh, I was uh, I was part of it, uh, and it did give me a kind of sensibility. Oh, I'm sorry, Gene Shepard was the author of the Christmas Story. That's right. Okay. He just had a marvelous gift of storytelling uh, and reflecting on life um, in in this kind of uh, distanced, ironic way. And I think it's given me a sensibility that has never quite left me, being able to sort of look at as he did the human comedy, which is often quite sad, but still uh, there is there is something comedic about it, and uh, that's uh, that's been a source of strength through my life. I think I owe a great deal to uh, to Shep, uh, as his followers called him, and. I, I, I don't think a musical list would be complete about my own life if it didn't include his, his theme song.
Your next song is Both Sides Now. Yes, well, um, I associate that with my time in Berkeley. I'm not quite sure why, but if I think of my days in Berkeley, the melody always comes back into my head. So it's really uh, a, a kind of signature for that period. I went out to Berkeley in 1964 after graduating from Brooklyn College. I remained there for uh, almost seven years, getting my PhD in political science. Uh, but of course, Berkeley, when I was there, was more than just a place, a fine institution in which to get an education. It was a place where the world in which we now lived, in, in, now live in many respects, culturally, politically, was being hacked. Uh, within a month or so of my arrival there in, in, in October of uh, 1964, the free speech movement uh, begins. Um, and that really is the... Is it pure coincidence, or you, you, I, you set it <laughs> off? You, ins- you, you offended so many people. <laughs> they saw me and they said, gee, if this is what the next generation is going to be like, we better start doing something quickly to prevent it. And so uh, the free speech movement with its notion of, well, it's utopian notion of remaking uh, the United States, uh, socially transforming the United States, uh, looking upon the United States as a kind of benighted inheritance, you know, a whole series of, 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 of nasty traits that now finally had to be re-examined and cleaned up, and that there was a new generation filled with kind of innocent wisdom uh, that I, was going to do this I want to interrupt you there up. and ask you, um, I, I remember when I was in college, I took a course which I don't remember any of the content of, but the principle behind the course was was fascinating to me and, and something I've always carried with me. It was a course on the history. I don't know why I took it. It was a course on the history of American education. Mm-hmm. And the professor said, every 15 to 20 years, we panic and we reform education, forgetting that what we're reforming is the previous reforms. So it seems to me that there... Every generation comes along and says, oh, my gosh, what a mess. We better clean this up and do something different. And they forget that what they're cleaning up and doing different is what the previous generation did. Is there something about just generationally we, we, we can't learn from the past or we can't say, now, wait a minute, you know, are, are what we are suggesting actually lead to a positive outcome? Utopias don't tend to end well, do they? No. Uh, well, revisionism, trying to undo what's been done and, and start a new path, is a characteristic, I think, of uh, all generational change. And it's certainly a characteristic of intellectuals. No one wants to do the same old thing, uh, you don't get credit for doing the same old thing. You get credit for seeing something new. Berkeley was one of those places where, you know, the great cause of the day was breaking with the past and starting anew. What was the past? Now, the Berkeley that I attended, the University of California that I attended, uh, was in the shape that I founded something itself relatively new. Uh, There had been evolving during the 20th century this notion of the university as a temple of science, as a place of dispassionate analysis. Uh, everybody, whether whatever your field was, you were a scientist of some kind, political scientist, a social scientist, you know, everybody was a, was trying to be a, a scientist. That was relatively new because back in the 19th century, earlier part of the 19th century especially, universities were thought first and foremost to have a religious and cultural vocation. So this was relatively new, this notion of science. And that's what, uh, more than anything else, I think, the student protesters were taking on. They wanted to bring relevance back bring a social mission back. Uh, They regarded science as a sort of uh, handmaiden of the kind of capitalist bureaucracies that that ran the university and that ran everything else. They wanted to throw themselves into the machine and make the machine stop, as Mario Savio, the leader of the protests, 
famously said. So they were responding, as you say, to something that itself was relatively new. Uh, But I think they laid down the foundations of something that in turn was fairly lasting. Many of our universities, uh, much of university life is still run on on the cultural assumptions uh, that came out of the 1960s. So I was at a place where the future was being born. I, I would not have thought it then, but in retrospect, it seems fairly clear to me uh, that what was happening at Berkeley and then spread to other places uh, was a seminal event. Um, so you were present at the creation. I was present at the creation. But you were unhappy with what was being created. Never particularly happy, no. Did, I, was, was, were you instinctually uh, unhappy with what was going on and felt that they, they, the excesses and the ideas were just not workable? Well, or, after or, the Dodgers left Brooklyn, I couldn't have team spirit about anything. So uh, identifying with all these folks out there. Let's listen to both sides now. Rows and flows of angel Ice cream castles in the air And feather canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that weave But now they only block the sun They rain and snow on everyone So many things I would have done Your next song is No Other Love Have I. That, of course, is a song that came out of the music that was composed for the famous uh, television series Victory at Sea. The program itself, uh, which was one of the first great documentaries done for television and ran over 25, 26 weeks and half-hour episodes, was a story of heroism, uh, of fighting for the right. Uh, And it really did grip me. And I think, you know, on the one hand, uh, there's always been something of, as I say, the, uh, the, the distanced observer about my view of the world, the sort of Gene Shepard, Rye analyst. But there's also been something of the romantic in me, somebody, uh, something that tells me uh, that I should be part of something of historic significance, get out there and, and struggle for the right. So if you take a look at what makes me tick, it's, it's a combination of a certain degree of dispassionate distance and aloofness, but on the other hand, Uh, a desire to get out there and and fight the good fight, and it kind of combined in this rather unusual career track that uh, I finally found myself on uh, after I left Berkeley and returned to New York. No other love have I Only my love for you Only the dream we knew No other love Watching the night go by Wishing that you could be Watching the night with me 
Into the night I cry, hurry home, come home to me, set me free, free from doubt and free from longing into your arms I'll fly Locked in your arms I'll stay Waiting to hear you say No other love have I No other love Now we're, we're making a Another wild steer of the wheel here, uh, literally, to G. Officer Krupke from West Side Story. And I, the, the line from West Side Story, which I uh, remember the best, is I'm uh, depraved because I was deprived. Right. Now, I always thought that was an interesting line because uh, Bernstein, the composer, was uh, a famous liberal. I mean... Famous as in, like, inviting the Black Panthers to Mm -hmm. tea, liberal. But that was a sort of cynical line in there about uh, that we excuse the worst behavior by saying somehow that somebody's uh, upbringing or their... lack of potty training or something led to, led to their behavior and you know which to me is a, is problematic because of it, essentially it, it it puts everything in the diagnostic manual and uh, nothing into the realm of good mm-hmm. and evil mm-hmm. well there's a bit of self-parody I, I would be guessing on on Bernstein's part I had my first permanent career track tenure track job at, at John Jay College of Criminal Justice which I alluded to. They wanted to shut it down at one point. It was an institution that taught policemen. Uh, and we had police in the class. Uh, they were armed. You know, when you look look out into the classroom, one of the students... So when would, you gave uh, an F, there was you, a you certain... Had to, right, see, you, you, see, you uh, did live a life of danger. <laughs> yes, well, in Texas... If O'Malley, you got an F. <laughs> Come up here and get your paper. So so you, you had these tough guys who uh, had lived the life out on the streets, and you were supposedly telling them about the world. While I was at, at, at John Jay College, I, you know, began to develop my doubts about some aspects of the university. It didn't seem to me, for example, to always be run that efficiently. I hate to say that about a university. And on top of that, I began to see aspects of the curriculum that I thought were mainly designed to create a sense of, of, of grievance. Um, and I didn't like that either. It, it doesn't seem to me that the mission of a university should be as pointedly political, at least, as some of my colleagues who looked on the student body. Most of the student body were not policemen. Most of the student body were young kids from the inner city. And many of them were ambitious and wanted to learn. Many of them had academic problems, relatively poor preparation. But, you know, they were members of the of the faculty who really saw them as kind of uh, just for the revolutionary mill, uh, who imagined their teaching to be a way of recruiting people for, for political activity. Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers all are junkies, our fathers all are drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we're punks. Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset. We never had the love that every child ought to get. 
We ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood. Deep down inside us, there is good. There is good, there is good, there is good, there is untapped good. Like inside, the worst of us is good. That's a touching good story. Let me tell it to the world. Just tell it to the judge. Dear, kindly judge your honor, my parents treat me rough with all their marijuana. They won't give me a puff. They didn't want to have me, but somehow I was had. Leap on lizards, that's why I'm so bad. Right, Officer Crappy, Aurelia Square. This boy don't need a judge, he needs an analyst care. This shucks his neurosis, that ought to be quite. He's psychologically destroyed. I'm destroyed. We're, we're destroyed. We're destroyed. We're the most destroyed. Like we're psychologically destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> Opinion of escort. This child is depraved on account he ain't had a normal home. Hey, I'm depraved on account I'm deprived. So take him to a head shrinker. You. Who, me? Oops. My daddy beats my mommy. My mommy clobbers me. My grandpa is a commie. My grandma pushes tea. My sister wears a mustache. My brother wears a dress. Goodness gracious, that's why I'm a mess. Yes, Officer Cupkey, he shouldn't be here. This boy don't need a couch, he needs a useful career. Society's played him a terrible trick. Unsociologically, he's sick. I am sick. We are sick, we are sick, we are sick, sick, sick. Like we're sociologically sick. Your next song is Old Nassau. Well, I, mo I moved to Princeton and lived there for 32 years, beginning in 1980. Uh, and um, I married uh, in 1979, and, and my wife and I thought that raising children would be better done in an uh, idyllic setting, a university town uh, like Princeton. I had actually lived there uh, in the 70s when I taught for a year at uh, Rutgers, so I knew the community, and it's a beautiful place. We bought a house the first time I was a homeowner. 32 years later, we were in the same house. It was half a house without a garage. Uh, you had to park on the street. I sold it and came down here and uh, bought uh, a uh, 40 acres and a mule. I mean, really a kind of big, big spread. Yeah. It just spreads out in every direction, and it's certainly one of the great things about about living here in, in, in Lubbock in the Southwest. You know, Princeton is a, a, a kind of snobbish community, uh, very uh, full of itself. It has a lot of things to do, but it embodied for me, I guess, this sort of aspiration to intellectual excellence. Um, I, I say that in a tone of voice and suggest there's something false uh, about uh, being too preoccupied with wanting to do that. But I did enjoy my time there, and, and while I was there, I was still teaching at John Jay, commuting in. There was a bus that uh, connected uh, Princeton with um, downtown Manhattan. I founded the organization that would prove to be the um, really defining element in my life. The, the National Association of Scholars, and located it in Princeton, since Princeton seemed to be a very appropriate place for anything that was going to call itself the National Association of Scholars, and uh, left John Jay and started running that full-time in 1987 um, with, a, with a prestigious Princeton address attached to it. 
next melody on my list is the Academic Festival Overture. Um, since the purpose of the National Association of Scholars uh, was to try to reclaim the academy for that temple of science point of view that I mentioned earlier with respect to Berkeley. Uh, the notion of a university whose high calling was not to change the world in one particular way, but rather to contribute to the world's stock of knowledge, uh, to prepare people to find out new things about the world, um, not to take a particular position about how the world was going to be improved, but to prepare people to be able to capably improve it. Um, maybe and that's I think what that's a very important principle to discuss. I guess every, everybody who uh, takes a job professing uh, has to make a decision about not only what they're going to profess about in terms of what is your field or now your very narrow subfield is, is more the case, but what the, the outcome is. And I, I've always loathed movies about inspirational teachers because to me they raise the bar so much of what you're supposed to accomplish it you know the kind of movie where at the end you know every single student has been absolutely transformed and is going to go on and you know rule conquer the the world based on on your wonderful teachings when in reality you know there's a bell curve of, of interest in your class and some as a teacher for the last 20 years I, I probably there have been a few students that I've inspired I think a few students I've given some knowledge to a lot of students probably don't even remember who who, who I am but I do think a principle that, I, that I've admired in the teachers that I admire is they're not in it for themselves in the sense that they're not in it. I must convince you that my ideology, my beliefs are the ultimate truth and write it down and take notes and go forth and preach. That, that's, that's not what education is about. It's I want to give you tools. I want to give you some ideas. I want to challenge you. I mean, I certainly hope college is always a place where people hear uncomfortable ideas and are challenged uh, because that doesn't happen too often in, da in daily life in terms of ideas. You tend to surround yourself with people who agree with you. But I do hope that we teach them to ask questions and to answer those questions. And those, those, the answer to those questions, as you say, often comes out of logic and reason and, and, and science. Well, you don't want to just produce a clone of yourself. That would be a rather boring world. But moreover, I think it would be, be self-defeating. And here, you know, let me go back to Gene Shepard. I mean, uh, Gene Shepard, who had his sort of view of the comedy of life, uh, had the same view, or at least projected the same view about himself. At some level, of course, you have to have seriousness of purpose. But you have to temper that with an ability to kind of look at yourself as the limited mortal who you are and see that it's not always all that serious. And that's a good attitude, I think, for a teacher. A teacher comes into the class, clearly knows something a lot more about a subject than students do, wants to impart factual knowledge and, and wants to necessarily impart a certain element of their own views. But you have to understand that you're, 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 you're fallible, uh, you're conceited, you have a narrow and, as everyone does, somewhat biased perspective on the world. And the student actually should know that. The student should realize that you don't consider yourself to be unimpeachably right uh, oracle for all knowledge. That you yourself understand that what you're saying, despite your best endeavors, is often off-base, 
or maybe utterly false. And the student has to be prepared to examine what you're saying and not take you as a professor as seriously as in your worst moments you might like to be taken. So yeah, I, I, I think uh, there, there has to be a kind of subtle mixture of message that comes across in the classroom. You want to educate, but one of the things you want to educate people in is uh, a kind of uh, self-criticalness, uh, an understanding that um, uh, we're, we're all a lot less than we'd like to be, uh, and that goes for authority figures as well as students. next song is the Ruins of Athens March. Tell us about the Ruins of Athens. Uh, well, it's Beethoven, and it purports to show Athens under the Turks. Uh, there's what in the early 19th century would have been called Turkish music, symbols and drums, as a presumably a detachment of Janissaries is, is marching through Athens. And, you know, Beethoven looking on on this vision as a as a romantic as a romantic musician part of the movement of romanticism uh, which found ruins of course to be sublime nonetheless was looking at it as sort of the passing of a golden age here is athens and and now it had not yet been restored for for tourists uh, sort of lying in ruins and uh, you know I, I i don't think the western world as a whole has quite come to that state yet but, to some extent, my desire to see Western civilization programs develop uh, is an effort to, um, to f postpone the day indefinitely uh, in which the Athens that we have built uh, here in America uh, and in the Western world as a whole lies in ruins. Before I came to Texas Tech, I was encouraging other members of the National Association of Scholars to create programs like this. Many were created. None of them have quite the same title and mission as the Institute for the Study of Western Civilization, but they did analogous things uh, on their own campuses, had varying degrees of success. Most of them are still in existence. I saw this as 
again, I didn't want to be a chateau general forever. I wanted to come out of the chateau and move to the front lines and create a, uh, a, a program of my own. And um, I don't think I could have picked a better place than Texas Tech to come. The Athens of West Texas. The Athens of West Texas. Well, there's a, a great deal more going on here in Lubbock than a Princetonian ever would have thought. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and something, again, you know, it's funny. Lubbock does not have the world's best reputation outside of West Texas, but everybody who gets a chance to visit either changes their mind or alters their their, their mind to some new, more sublime state of, of vision of what Lubbock can, can be, including a remarkable intellectual diversity once you just go past uh, some of the, you know, louder pronouncements. There's a lot of things going on on campus, and a lot of yes. ideas, and this is, the, if, if Athens, you know, the, where the attic bird trilled her warbled <laughs> note, uh, to quote Milton, if Athens is discussion, then I think we're a great university. Oh, no, I'd, I'd, I'd agree. I, I, we're way ahead of most of our peers in that respect. And Lubbock itself has, again, um, far more in the way of cultural resources than uh, someone uh, sitting on a, on a private league perch in the, in the East would think. And what's more, when you're here, you use them. Whereas when you're in New York City or Philadelphia or Princeton, you congratulate yourself in being in this kind of great, great center of attainment. But basically, you take it for granted and do nothing. So I'm, I'm far more culturally active since I came out here. I've been attending the Lubbock Symphony. I have season tickets for the past three years, uh, do a lot of other stuff besides, um, and have, have suffered nothing at all in terms of my uh, intellectual and cultural life. Uh, quite the contrary. I mean, it's been a great opportunity to meet a lot of different people and have those discussions. Your final song is September. Well, that's sort of a, a song um, sung by someone moving on through life and, and talking about the, the final chances of happiness. I don't want to say that, you know, I'm at the... You could have picked Sunrise Sunset <laughs> if you wanted to. Yeah. 
Well, when my I still have a, a kid at home, so when 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 he leaves, I'll 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 do sunrise sunset. But I, I wanted to conclude my professional life by doing something that wasn't simply a matter of standing at the sidelines and being critical. It's an important thing to do, to stand at the sidelines and be critical if there are things worth criticizing. But I wanted to do something uh, that would be constructive, that would build what I hope will be a kind of uh, enduring institution and activity. And that's what I came here to do. Uh, it's still September. September, well, it's October now, but uh, September is not quite the end of the year. You know, you have a good three months to go. So I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to the rest of October and November and December. But I, I did have a sense that it was time to uh, shift gears a bit. And rather than just carp and complain, however justifiably, to do something that would have a kind of constructive and enduring outcome. So here I am to do that. And we are very lucky to be in a profession which, which unlike baseball, you can be quite vigorous intellectually as, as long as uh, the Lord lets you to be, whereas, whereas the, the clicking talk, cock club of your body in baseball is, uh, comes too early for, for, for many. Uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago, I, I was very honored to be a speaker at an the Nationals, I forget the exact name, it was essentially the National Association of Emeritus and Retired Faculty. And it was delightful because everybody there was in their 80s or 70s. And so I was a young man and, you know, people said, Sonny, you know, and one woman pinched my cheek and said, you're such a good boy, you know. And I liked that a lot, being a man in his 50s, that uh, we can be still uh, uh, young and vigorous up for quite some time. And my father, who passed away a couple of years ago uh, in uh, 87, was still publishing, you know, so there was a Perlmutter in 1949 and a Perlmutter 2011, you know, and so he, he kept it up. Uh, in fact, he died in action, um, which is the way I would like to go, if anybody's listening, uh, is that he got up in the middle of the night to uh, write down an idea and tripped and fell and hit his head, which is, you know, I'm, Dad, you, you showed me the way. You know? <laughs> so I don't think we want to die by... Uh, you know, more violent means or, or maybe by uh, more slow means, you know. So we, we have a lot of chances in our life as long as we keep up our curiosity and our ideas. Well, to go back to baseball, I'd like to think of myself as the satchel page of academe, uh, continuing to, uh, to throw that ball uh, so long as uh, not looking back to see what's catching up on me, as, as, as he famously said, famously said, so long as I can. Well, Steve, thank you very much for uh, joining us today, and also thank you very much for elevating discourse at Texas Tech. Well, uh, thank you for having me. From May to December But the days grow short When you reach September When the autumn weather Turns the leaves to flame One hasn't got time For the waiting Down to a precious few. 
September November And these few precious days I'll spend with you These precious days I'll spend with you I'll spend 